Brian Barnett is just a regular guy. He's not a doctor. He has no legal license in any field of mental health nor emotional health. Brian Barnett merely shares the insights he has gained from his personal experiences for anybody who may choose to use such information as they individually and personally choose while accepting full responsibility for their own individual thoughts, feelings, and behaviors. Brian Barnett assumes no responsibility whatsoever for anybody's individual choice to expose himself or herself to any information that Brian Barnett shares. And by listening to this program, you are acknowledging that you and only you are responsible for your own thoughts, feelings, and behaviors. Happy Thursday, everybody. Welcome back to The Last Symptom. Man, I'm so glad you found your way here or decided to return. I'm Brian Barnett, the creator and host. If you haven't yet visited my website full of free resources, I invite you to do just that. It can be found at thelastsymptom.com. While you're there, consider leaving a donation to support my overall body of work, which includes this podcast, if you're so inclined. And if that inclination hits you, I thank you very much. Let's get down to business. In the past several days, the vast majority of posts coming down the pipeline on my education group have focused on girlfriends, boyfriends, partners, etc. In other words, they're dealing with this. Tell me what to do. So here's my first question. If they're the one with the problem, why am I talking to you? I can think of not one scenario where somebody else should be your primary focus. Your primary focus should always be you, yourself. I know, I know. You think you're the epitome of emotional health and it's the other person who needs fixed. But this is simply not true. If they're a part of your life, then emotional unhealth is part of your life. Not only that, but you're a contributor to the overall unhealth of the relationship itself. And if you can't see how this is true, you have a lot of work to do in analyzing yourself. But instead, what are you doing? You're misusing your energy and attention on the wrong thing. Your default thought when you look at a boyfriend who's steeped in emotional unhealth should be, I'm hopeful he will do something about it. Now, I'm going to look at me, myself, and figure out why. Why am I trying to assume his responsibilities for him? Responsibilities that only belong to him. And then, you know, you'd ask yourself, by me doing this, by me trying to assume his responsibilities for him, In what ways am I neglecting my responsibilities? The only responsibilities I inherently have to honestly evaluate myself. In what ways is my interfering with what are only his responsibilities, only obstructing his opportunities for improvement, helping other people? I say that in air quotes, helping. 
is almost always a coy way to refuse looking inward and fixing the only thing you have any inherent right, responsibility, or authority to address and fix. And to be perfectly blunt about it, once you understand this from the correct perspective, it is indescribably offensive. It reminds me of a pulmonologist, you know, a lung specialist, who makes a living reprimanding you for all the ways that you're abusing your lungs and telling you all the things you need to do for your lungs. Also, did I mention that this pulmonologist smokes six packs of cigarettes a day? Do you see anything wrong with that picture? Let me give you my dad as an example. He will tell you how to live and the things you should be doing all the live long day. And yet, who is this man? He's a narcissist who inexcusably, physically and emotionally abused his wife and all of his children for all the years that they lived at home. But was that the end of it? No. My siblings are still living with the destructive consequences of that abuse in the form of emotional damage, which has manifested in everything from alcoholism to suicidal rumination to eating disorders. So, the very man who created these conditions in the first place, instead of taking a step back, recognizing and identifying his own issues, recognizing that he has no business offering advice to others when he's never stopped to identify and correct his own issues. This is the same man who will happily tell you what you're doing wrong and what you should do about it. But back to my siblings. They may never identify and fix the damage he has caused within them. Why? Why not? Because just like my father... They're too busy focusing their attention and involving their minds on what others could be doing differently or better. In other words, they are too busy occupying their thoughts and attention on what their own children and spouses, or people who aren't even related to them, should do. Do you see what the natural result of this is? Can you see the big picture, the dance that is going on here? My dad will never identify and correct his emotional unhealth. My siblings will never identify and correct their emotional unhealth. Their children, most likely, will never identify and correct their emotional unhealth. Around and around and around the wheel goes. And why? All because it never occurs to anybody to stop and focus on the one thing. They have any right, responsibility, or authority to focus their energy and attention on. So are you starting to see how your help is not help? It is an unbelievably offensive violation of the law of individual inherent rights, responsibility, and authority. A total abuse of yourself toward yourself, and toward others. So if you're tuning in here, looking for answers for your boyfriend or your girlfriend or your partner, that's nice. But you're here for the wrong reasons. What is the boyfriend or the girlfriend doing? 
unless they're self-initiating and making these efforts for themselves, I can't help them. Nothing here can help them. Nothing on earth can help them. So your immediate homework assignment is to make a concerted effort to clearly see and understand why this is true. You doing things for somebody you care about is not helping them. It's hurting them. You see, they've already lived an entire lifetime of avoiding making any real efforts at all to identify and repair their inner damage. Inner damage that only, only they can identify and repair. They already will do anything they can to avoid exerting themselves toward this cause. They will do anything they can, anything, to avoid it. They'll find any reason not to do it. And what are you doing? Well, you're jumping right in there and carrying their lunchbox for them so that they won't have to, aren't you? Yes, you can recommend my podcast to people you care about. And to be perfectly honest, I I appreciate it very much whenever anybody does this. But if that person doesn't self-initiate and make his own or her own efforts to download the episodes and then actually set aside time to listen for themselves because they themselves are moved to do it, it's just very unlikely that any of the information I share here is going to do any real good. They have to do it for themselves. I realize that there are powerful feelings in play. And believe it or not, I'm sensitive to those feelings. At the same time, I'm here to tell you things despite your feelings. Despite your feelings. I'm here to present the reality of the situation to you and help you understand it. If I perceive that these very important realities are continuing to go right over the majority of people's heads, what choice will I have but to begin speaking on the subject in terms that are even more blunt than you're used to hearing me speak in? This is something I'd rather not have to do because the sweeter I can say things, well, the more appetizing they generally are to the greatest number of people. Other people are the wrong primary focus for you to have, no matter who you are, and no matter how well-intentioned you are. Even for those of you with minor children, yes, minor children are, are an extension of yourself, and as a result, they are included within your individual rights, responsibility, and authority. Nevertheless, When speaking of emotional, mental, and physical needs, you yourself must still be your primary concern. This is how you show genuine love toward your children. You make sure that the person they depend on for everything, you, that you are emotionally, mentally, and physically healthy. When I get in the car... Well, I don't drive a car. I drive a Jeep Wrangler. But when I get in the Jeep, I not only put a seatbelt on my daughter, 
but I make absolutely sure I have a seatbelt on myself as well. Why do I do that? Because if we get in a car accident and I'm dead, I can't very well attend to my daughter who might have been injured in the wreck, can I? So if your attitude is focusing your attention primarily on how somebody else is living or on what they are doing or not doing or on what they need, then your distorted attitude toward the situation is harming that person more and I won't be a part of that. You see, that attitude is working against my mission and my purpose for creating these shows and <clears throat> writing my articles and I won't be a part of it. I'm not going to I'm not going to compliment those efforts. So snap out of it. Get with the program. Start working on identifying your own issues, honestly. And if the boyfriend or the girlfriend or the, the partner ever finds their way here to me and they're working on themselves for themselves, well, then I will gladly work just as hard for them as I do for you. And in the same way, I'll be honest about what it is they need to be focused on and what sorts of adjustments they need to make to their perspectives to be happier and healthier. You see, you don't want me telling your boyfriend or your girlfriend that instead of working on their own issues, they should be focused on you. Do you? You don't want me to do that. Hey, boyfriend, don't worry about your issues. Focus on her. You don't want me to to tell them to do that to you. So why do you think it's okay for you to have that attitude toward them? Why do you think it's any different for you? Why do you think I'm going to tell you that it's okay that you're stepping into their circle of individual inherent rights, responsibility, and authority? It, that don't make sense. That don't make sense at all. And I hope you can see that. So reject this insight at your own peril. I, I realize that you might not be able to see any way at all that you could possibly be emotionally unhealthy. But that is the nature of emotional unhealth. You see, if everybody could just look in the mirror and go, oh my, look at that, I'm emotionally unhealthy. We wouldn't have very many emotionally unhealthy people. But that's just not the case. We have lots of emotionally unhealthy people. And the entire nature of emotional unhealth is that you yourself, the person who is emotionally unhealthy, does not perceive it. Take me, for example. It wasn't until I was 35 that I even began to suspect that I was emotionally unhealthy or that I had a disorder of some type. That is the nature of emotional unhealth. You walk around thinking that you are normal. Again, I say normal in air quotes. But you walk around thinking that you're normal. You do not know that you live with emotional unhealth. Or that any of these things apply to you. That is why it's so difficult to escape. Not easy to escape. Difficult to escape. Because people spend their entire lives completely blind to what has been right under their noses the entire time. But I don't have to know you personally. To know for a certainty and without any doubt whatsoever. That if you are here to help somebody else then you yourself 
are dealing with your own emotional unhealth. And given that this is the undeniable truth of the situation, you have your own work to do. You have no excuse to be making somebody else your primary focus in relation to matters of emotional health. You see, the very fact, the very fact that this, you've made this person part of your life, and by trying to help them, you are enabling their disorder, is undeniable proof that you yourself are emotionally unhealthy. That's why I say I don't need to even know you personally. The situation tells me that you are emotionally unhealthy. Because emotionally healthy people would not be doing things that support another person's emotional un- uh, that supports another person's emotional unhealth, which is what you are doing. Okay, that was a windy conversation, but we had to have it because more and more people all the time are coming to me about somebody else, and I'm not interested in talking about somebody else. Either I'm talking to you about you, or we're wasting each other's time. And I've tried to explain this a million times, but a lot of folks simply seem to be hell-bent on fighting against the acceptance of this reality. So as long as it's something that people continue to resist, I'm just going to continue finding more and more bold ways to call you out on it, all right? Now, on to today's main topic. Why people with borderline personality disorder, cannot experience things like genuine love or empathy. I promised in the previous episode that we would discuss this. I also predicted that this is a conversation most of you won't enjoy having, but it's one we're going to have anyway. And if you've listened to all the other episodes, then you've probably built up some trust in me and you're ready for this conversation. If anybody had forced this conversation on me before I was ready to hear it, I probably would have rejected it out of hand. But nobody ever had to have any such conversation with me at all. These are obvious, undeniable realizations I gradually came to myself over the many years of my recovery while piecing together every subtle aspect of borderline personality disorder and coming to understand the genuine nature of it, and of all its many parts. We talked about the what. That is, I explained that folks with the disorder are unable to experience genuine empathy. And on other occasions, I've spoken about how they are unable to experience genuine love. So that's the what. That they are unable. And I promise that in the future... I'd talk to you about the whys. Why people with borderline personality disorder are unable to experience these things genuinely. So, here we are. We're in the future. I'm glad we all made it through the time warp in one piece. Certainly, you've heard the expression, in order to truly love others, you must love yourself first. Until now, what have you thought of this saying? I'm curious, when you heard this expression in the past, did you believe it? Or did you not really give it much thought? Or did you spend a second trying to figure the riddle out of what it's trying to say, but then give up? Well, the expression is true 
It is not just a thing people say, but that doesn't mean much. And if you don't understand why the expression very simply describes a profound, fundamental reality, you have much work to do. You must make every effort to ruminate on the subject until you do understand what the expression is communicating and why it is true. Maybe that seems overwhelming, but it's, it'll be uh, enjoyable, happy work. Now, let me ask you, does a person with borderline personality disorder genuinely love herself or himself? No, he or she does not. Not only do they not love themselves, but it goes much deeper than that. They are not able to love themselves. As long as a person has borderline personality disorder, he or she is literally unable to love himself or herself. Why is this true? Well, what is the cause of borderline personality disorder? What is the foundation upon which the entire disorder is built? From where do every single one of the symptoms of this disorder originate? The root of the entire disorder is two false subconscious perspectives. These perspectives are what they use to interpret the very reality that they observe around them and that they themselves make up a part of. So like orange-tinted sunglasses, everything that the person observes, feels, and thinks must first pass through this filter, which interprets for them whatever it is that they're observing or feeling or thinking about. Nothing they process gets processed without first being interpreted through this filter. So what is this foundation or filter, these two false subconscious perspectives? What are they? They're the following two beliefs. My feelings are inherently irrelevant and shameful, devoid of worth. And if my feelings are irrelevant and shameful, devoid of worth, then I myself am inherently irrelevant and shameful, devoid of worth. Now let me ask you, is the belief that you yourself are utterly devoid of worth, that you naturally lack any value whatsoever, is this at all compatible with also genuinely loving yourself at the same time? You've probably already answered the question in your head. In no way, shape, or form are these things compatible. The two things simply and inarguably cannot coexist. Are you beginning to see how the very nature of the disorder, the very nature of what borderline personality disorder is, its very cause, the thing that makes it possible at all, 
The thing that makes borderline personality disorder borderline personality disorder, how the very nature of the disorder itself makes love a complete impossibility? One cannot believe subconsciously that he or she is inherently devoid of value, that his or her natural state is one of zero value, and at the same time, genuinely love himself or herself. The two things are diametrically opposed. The very nature of love means we look upon something or someone as having tremendous inherent value. And borderline personality disorder says you have no natural value. If you have borderline personality disorder, there may be aspects about yourself, about yourself, that you superficially like. Maybe you admire your artistic ability. Maybe you like the shape of your nose. But the admiration of these things is not the same as genuinely liking yourself. Admiration is not the true underlying perspective you have toward yourself. Your true underlying perspective is that any amount of value you have is dependent on external factors. Factors like what? Well, factors such as your artistic ability. In fact, this is probably why you took it up in the first place and became so skilled at art to begin with. Because you subconsciously believed that your very worth depends on it. You started getting compliments on your paintings and your drawings at some point in your life, and it made you feel like you were not totally without value. You see? At some point in your life, you drew a picture, and you got praise. So you drew some more pictures, and you got more praise. And you drew some more pictures, and you got even more praise. And suddenly you were starting to feel like you were not totally without value. And after that, to continue earning, air quotes, earning this superficial external sense of value, art become your life. Emotionally healthy people do not depend on external sources in order to feel or perceive themselves as valuable. They generate their own validation from within regardless of any external factors such as their abilities or the shape of their nose or how much money they have or what sort of car they drive or how many friends that they accumulate. How can they do this? They can do it because their subconscious perspective is that they don't have to earn their individual worth because their worth is an inherent quality that is a natural quality that they were simply born with. It can't be taken away, and it doesn't need to be earned. Ice is inherently cold, and people are inherently valuable. It is a natural, inseparable part of being a person. 
Now, at this point in the conversation, you should be seeing how it is an undeniable reality that people who have borderline personality disorder cannot love themselves. But you're probably wondering back to the beginning of this discussion when I brought up the saying, you can't truly love others if you don't love yourself first. And you're wondering now how this statement can be true. We're probably not going to fix it for you today, but I'm going to give you some things to think about, and it really, truly, is going to be your homework assignment to try to figure out what that riddle means. Until you can understand it, then you're going to be stuck for a while. And I'll tell you exactly what it is you're fighting against right now as you're listening to me make these statements. You are fighting against personal, direct experience. That is, what I'm saying right now is conflicting with what you yourself have felt at different times in your life. See, you're remembering specific, powerful feelings that you have personally experienced in relation to others and that you yourself are convinced was or is love. But what is a major, fundamental, defining aspect of borderline personality disorder? It's that those with the disorder do not have an accurate concept of the true nature of what feelings are, nor of the purpose that they exist for. And why is this true? It's true because since they were three or four years of age, those with the disorder have held the subconscious certainty that feelings are what? That they are inherently shameful and devoid of worth. What is shame? Shame is the feeling of humiliating repugnance toward a thing. What do you do with things about yourself that you are ashamed of? Do you embrace it? Do you voluntarily reveal it to others? No and no. Ladies, let's say that you have bad breath and missing teeth. Do you get up as close as you can up into other people's faces and talk to them freely with no concern whatsoever? knowing that you have bad breath? You surely, surely do not. In fact, what you do is everything you possibly can do to make absolutely certain that nobody ever becomes aware of it. Fellas, do you have the smallest penis that has ever been documented? And along with the smallest penis in the world, do you also suffer from erectile dysfunction? If so, how often do you bring it up and share the details of this misfortune with everybody at parties? Do you walk around proudly naked with your curtains wide open to make sure your neighbors get a nice long look? Now, I'm just using these as examples of things that many people would feel shame about. But because people have inherent worth, even if these examples apply to you personally, I want to assure you that they do not affect your worth. 
because your worth, your value, is an inherent part of being a human, a human being. Remember? This reality is not affected in the least bit by external factors, not missing teeth, not bad breath, not small penises, not erectile dysfunction, nothing. These are simply things that many people feel shame over. In fact, there's a commercial I've been seeing on TV that capitalizes on this shame. It's a commercial for a pill to help with erectile dysfunction, which claims that the pill can now be ordered in private and arrives in the mail with no identified marks on the packaging. Now, why would the company feel compelled to offer these allowances in their advertising. It's because they know that erectile dysfunction is shameful to many guys. Notice, the shame is so powerful a force that not only do men not want anybody to know about it, but even products designed to help it are marketed with this shame in mind. So now that we've all tapped into the humiliating repugnance that is shame, I want you to now think again. What feelings people with borderline personality disorder feel about their feelings? Isn't that wild? That's wild. Their attitude toward their feelings produces shameful feelings. Yes, the same humiliating repugnance that you feel toward your bad breath or small penis or erectile dysfunction. This is exactly what folks with borderline personality disorder feel about the idea of others being allowed to perceive their genuine feelings. They feel humiliated, repulsed, terrified. The idea of allowing others to be exposed to their genuine feelings is terrifying humiliating. Why? Because just like the examples I've already given, folks with borderline personality disorder feel this same level of shame toward their very feelings. See, it's easy to understand the shame of being known as somebody with terrible breath. But it's a little harder to truly grasp That borderline personality disorder involves the same feeling of humiliation and others being able to perceive your feelings. So, just like you're never going to get on primetime television and proudly show off your microscopic penis or breathe into the face of a guy that you have a mad crush on, folks with BPD will go to any extent necessary so that others are not granted access to their genuine feelings. Since they've lived entire lifetimes concealing this part of themselves, which is simply their authentic identity, you know, your genuine feelings and your authentic identity are more or less one and the same. Because of this, they're powerfully deficient in a human need. And what is that human need? It's intimacy. What is intimacy? Intimacy is the sharing of one's authentic feelings and inner self. So again, authentic feelings 
and inner self are the exact same thing. Your authentic identity is also the same thing. So intimacy is sharing your authentic feelings or inner self or authentic identity with another person. Notice also that I did not say intimacy is a nice luxury. No, I called it what it truly is. It's a human need. That means it's a requirement, a necessary ingredient to a genuinely healthy and happy state of existence. Now let me ask you this question. What is a primary, unavoidable requirement for love to exist? What does love need in order to exist? For it to even exist in the first place, and then for it to be able to grow. Intimacy. Can genuine love ever exist without genuine intimacy? No. Again, we're talking about two diametrically opposed things. Genuine love necessitates genuine intimacy. There is no such thing as love without intimacy. Love is intimacy with somebody. Can a person with borderline personality disorder enjoy genuine intimacy with another person? No. If they could, it would mean they did not have borderline personality disorder. Are you beginning to see how the very nature of this disorder disallows even the slightest possibility of these things in any true sense? Anybody who does not understand why these things are the way they are is simply failing horribly to understand the most fundamental basics of what the disorder is, the very nature of the disorder itself. See, it doesn't matter how powerful your feelings are. And this is something I'd like you to listen to very, very closely. Feelings are not what identify something as love or as not love. You've been brainwashed or miseducated into believing that love is a feeling. Love is not a feeling. Love is a quality. It is a quality that produces feelings as a natural result, but it is not a feeling in and of itself. It is a quality. Do you know the difference between a feeling and a quality? Sad is a feeling. Honest is a quality. So, sad is defined by what you feel. But is honest, as a quality, defined by what you feel? No, not even a little bit. So what determines honest, if it's not your feelings? What determines honest, as a quality, is if it meets certain concrete requirements. In other words, a person who possesses the quality of honesty 
behaves a certain way, which allows us to identify them as possessing the quality of honesty. If they frequently lie, that is, if the reality of their nature conflicts with what we know honesty to be, can we still say that they are honest, but just lie from time to time? No. They do not meet the conditions for the quality of honesty to apply to them. It doesn't matter how honest they feel. Either they match up to the definition of honesty or they don't. So now let me repeat what I said just a moment ago, knowing even as I do that many are rejecting this truth. Love is not a feeling. It is a quality. And as a quality, love produces feelings as a result. But in order for love to be love, just like any other quality, it must meet the conditions that define love. Otherwise, it is not love. So as a quality... Does love ever behave abusively? No. As a quality, does love ever behave unhealthily? No. As a quality, does love ever act in anger? No. As a quality, Does love ever allow the person who is genuinely experiencing it to become jealous? No. As a quality, does love ever wish anything bad upon the supposed target of that love? No, not ever. As a quality, does love ever hang on to resentment? No. Hopefully you're starting to get the idea, but let's stop here for a moment because I know what many of you are thinking. You're thinking of the many ugly aspects of your relationship, such as abusive behavior, jealousy, intense flare-ups of rage, and you're trying to wrestle up an explanation that all of these things have happened despite your love for each other because you can't give up the notion that feeling powerful feelings is love. No, love is not a feeling. It is a quality. And as a quality, it never behaves in ways we have already eliminated as possibilities. There is no such thing as you being in a relationship where these things are commonplace and of that being love. I say this Tenderly, you're delusional, ignorant, miseducated, and in denial if you believe otherwise. As long as you continue clinging to these distorted concepts, you simply will never experience authentic love, which, by the way, is about nine million times superior to this artificial, counterfeit substitute that you have only known until now. No, you are not experiencing love, and you are unable to experience love. 
as long as you have an emotional disorder built upon the two distorted foundation perspectives that I've explained to you today, because the very nature of those distorted core beliefs are in complete opposition to love. I'll repeat it again. Love is not your feelings. It doesn't matter how powerful those feelings are. As long as what you have does not match up to what identifies genuine love, in other words, as long as the natural qualities of your relationship do not match with the qualities of what defines or identifies the genuine article, then you're simply not experiencing real love. And we have explained in this episode how until you identify and repair the way your fundamental perspectives are interpreting life incorrectly for you, this will continue to be a problem. My voice is starting to go out on me. Forgive me for that. Now, I want you to think for a moment about a tomato. What makes a tomato a tomato? If you were going to describe a tomato to somebody who's never before seen a tomato, and then you were to send them out on a quest to properly identify and have the experience of eating a tomato, what sorts of descriptors would you give to help them do this? Well, you might say that uh, ripe tomatoes are red, and sometimes they're orange. Ripe tomatoes can even sometimes be slightly yellowish. And you might say that uh, they grow on a vine. You might also try to describe the taste. They're slightly sweet, juicy, with seeds that you can eat. The taste is enhanced a bit with salt. You'd probably tell them that tomatoes are round and come in different sizes. You see, they can be the size of a grape or they can be the size of a large apple. They have a soft skin. You can just eat the skin, no problem. All of these things identify a tomato, right? Now, what happens when the person you've sent away comes back with a cucumber and you say, that's not a tomato. It doesn't meet the qualifications I told you about. And they say, well, I beg to differ. It has a skin you can eat. It's juicy. Salt enhances it. It's slightly sweet. It grows on a vine. Then you say, but it's not red. It ain't orange. And it ain't round. This is not a tomato. Does the person's powerful feelings telling them otherwise matter? Are those feelings relevant in determining the reality of what it is that they're actually holding in their hand? No. The tomato is not defined by how we feel about it. Tomatoes are defined by a concrete set of defining features. Does it matter that the cucumber also grows on a vine or that its skin is edible? Not at all. Yes, there are some similarities, but it cannot be said that the cucumber is a tomato because the cucumber still does not meet some very fundamental requirements in order for it to be a tomato. Tomatoes are not elongated and shaped like bananas, for example. Tomatoes are round. This is not something you can just brush aside. 
Tomatoes meet concrete, undeniable conditions. Love meets concrete, undeniable conditions. Or it's simply not love. As a quality, authentic love can be described in concrete terms this way. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not jealous. Love is not arrogant or haughty. Love does not behave in ugly ways. Love does not look out for its own interests. Love does not become provoked. Love does not keep a running tab of what it considers to be unjust treatment. Love does not get pleased by any misfortune upon the other. Love always exhibits a spirit of hope and positivity. As I've explained in the past, these defining aspects of love do not exist as some superficial list to go down checking off and superficially imitating one by one in our existing relationships. No, these are simply identifying aspects of genuine love. That's all. That's all it is. Now, it's true that uh, this is paraphrased from the Bible, this description of love. So, if you're an atheist, maybe you're thinking, well, that don't apply to me, but you're wrong. Because this is not a religious definition of love. This is the definition of love. And it doesn't conflict with any authorities explanation of what genuine love is. Now, another thing, there are different types of love, such as romantic love, uh, principled love, etc. And all the different types of genuine love meet these same conditions. So this is not the definition for just one type of love. This is the definition, this is what describes all types of genuine love. If you look at your existing relationship and you see that it does not match these qualities, you aren't experiencing love. It doesn't matter how much your feelings tell you otherwise. Reality is not determined by your feelings. In other words, love just is what it is. If what you are experiencing isn't matching up to what love just is, you aren't sort of experiencing love. No. You're simply not experiencing love, period. Do you see what I'm getting at? If a regular feature of your relationship is jealousy, anger, bouts of rage, impatience, unkindness, arrogance, ugly behavior in general, provocation, and so on, the other times when there is a bit of sweetness does not make your cucumber a tomato. Let's go back to the two distorted core beliefs of borderline personality disorder. What are some other natural results of being ashamed of yourself and of your feelings, as well as believing that you are inherently devoid of value? Anger. The person with borderline personality disorder lives angry and frustrated, and as a result, They take their anger out on their partners. They lash out at their partners and make them suffer the same suffering that they themselves are experiencing. Does love allow for this sort of treatment toward others? 
No, it does not. It is patient, remember? It doesn't get provoked because it's able to put you in another person's shoes and consider all the extenuating circumstances and provide context. Jealousy. The person with borderline personality disorder has a lot of reasons to be jealous because the fundamental perspective they live with is that they aren't worth being with. Remember, they're devoid of worth. Do you naturally expect loyalty from others if you are somebody who sees yourself as being naturally devoid of worth? No, of course not. That's not what you naturally expect at all. What you instead expect is that the person will eventually realize what you have already known all along, that you are worthless. And if you are worthless, there is little reason for anybody to be loyal to you. Does a person who thinks they are worthless feel secure in a relationship? Of course not. Does genuine love allow for jealousy? No. Genuine love naturally produces trust. If you're experiencing a superficial, inferior thing that you are mistaken for love, it might be many things. It could be infatuation, sexual desire, an unhealthy dependence on other people. It could be a lot of things, but it's not love, no matter what your feelings tell you, no matter how much you want it to be love, as long as it fails to meet the fundamental aspects of what makes love, love. What is the good news here? The good news is that throughout this episode, I've said that people with borderline personality disorder are unable to experience genuine love. Why is this good news? Because remember, unable is not the same as incapable. We are unable to do everything we have yet to learn how to do. It's the whole reason schools exist, remember? We send out kids to school because they're unable to read and count. But they're capable of reading and counting, and that's why we can rightfully expect it of them. So are people with borderline personality disorder capable of experiencing things like genuine love and genuine empathy and so forth? Yes, they are. They only have to rid themselves of the disorder by straightening out their distorted perspectives on things like the true nature of their feelings and by extension everybody's feelings, straightening out their perceptions toward their inherent worth, straightening out their perceptions toward several other fundamental things such as, yes, love, what it is, how it behaves, how it does not ever behave, how it's not a feeling, it's a quality. And as such, it has to meet certain requirements, otherwise it's not love. I wanted to go ahead and tell you what our theme will be for the next episode, because I've already started on it, and I think it's going to be a good one. So I wanted to give you a heads up so that you can be sure to tune into it. Episode 48, which will be next Thursday, is your sensitivity to blame for your borderline personality disorder. 
So I hope you'll join me there. I hope you're having the best week of all time. I know I say that every week, but I mean it this week more than I meant it last week and the week before. (laughs) And I hope to see you next Thursday. Mm